Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Safety and Health Podcast by Safety and Health Practitioner. I'm your host, Ian Hart, and I'm the editor of SHP. On this episode, we have three interviews for you. We're going to hear about the pressing need to improve building safety culture and prevent low probability, high consequence events such as Grenfell from happening again. We're then going to look ahead to 2021 with some news from the Women in Health and Safety Network. And finally, we have an update on the 1% Safer Foundation. First up, I was delighted to be joined by my colleague James Moore, editor of SHP's sister site, IFSEC Global, which produces bespoke editorial, news and thought leadership for the security and fire sector. Myself and James sat down with Jill Koenig, Master Consultant at JMJ Associates. Jill is a consultant specialising in safety, leadership and culture, and she has been a high-profile voice on the subject of the Grenfell Tower fire. Her work saw her voted amongst the top 25 most influential people in health and safety by SHP's readers back in December. Let's join the interview with Jill explaining a little bit about her background and how she got into her role as a safety consultant. For many years, I worked in personal development, coaching, etc., etc., And then I got sick of people complaining about work and decided, actually, I'd rather work on transforming organizations or helping organizations change and knew of JMJ. Didn't really know about safety, but I knew of JMJ and I'm pretty committed to operating consistent with my personal values. So there was a good match and I joined JMJ and then fell in love with working in safety. Aside from your role for for campaigning for for Grenfell, which we're going to come on to in in a little bit, what sort of work do you do at JMJ and and what types of clients are you working with and what kind of work do you do with those clients? Predominantly high hazard industries. So I work a lot in oil and gas, but high hazard industries and focus on safety, culture and leadership. So if you like, the non-technical side of the socio-technical complex system and really work with organizations to create cultures that provide environments that keep people safe with a focus personally on major accident prevention. So from diagnostics through to working with senior execs, boards, you know, creating programs that might help it, but really partnering organizations to create the cultures and leadership capabilities to prevent accidents. How easy is it to kind of change a culture within an organization if you go in there and you realize and through the conversations with with the company that you realize actually it's not quite the culture that they want? How easy is it to implement that change and, and get the kind of workforce on board to the changes there? I never think it's difficult getting workforces on board. I think workforces are magical and probably the least need of change of anyone or anything in an organization. I'm pretty lucky because if an organization is hiring us, they're committed. And I'm very clear that what's needed is commitment from the top of an organization. So typically by the time an organization is working with us or with me, there's a strong commitment to change. So I'm not trying to force change into the organization. You, you talked there about getting buy-in from the top of the organization. That a, a lot of the sort of, I think a lot of the challenges that, that we find when I talk to safety and health practitioners is getting that board level buy-in and actually getting finances to go behind trying to put money into something that you're kind of trying to prevent, if you know what I mean. So actually, from a board level perspective, sometimes it's quite difficult as a health and safety manager to go to the board and say, look, I need some money behind this initiative. How important is it to get buy-in from senior management? And and how receptive have you found business leaders when it comes to implementing safety initiatives? So I struggle a little bit with that question. I don't think you need buy-in. I think that's the wrong word. I think you need ownership from boards and senior executives. So behavior is context dependent and boards and senior executives are accountable for creating the environment or context inside of which people behave in an organization. So I think part of the problem is we sometimes think of safety in terms of buy-in from senior people or let them come in be visible by opening a workshop or give us money. But 
that that's insufficient to create the kind of culture that you need to prevent accidents. They need to own it and drive it. They need to provide both direction but also protection for people while they're going through change. What's the key thing would you say to help implement those changes? Is, is it communication and, and how best is it to communicate those messages to the workforce? Well, again, that assumes that there's a top-down, you know, communicate something too. More, I would say, they need to listen. I mean, the workforce is pretty resilient and they do remarkable jobs and they navigate complex tensions that are needed to create safe outcomes, mostly brilliantly, and then something goes wrong. And frankly, the organization tends to put a huge amount of barriers in the way of doing that with stupid targets or you know, archaic lagging indicator metrics or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So really what senior executives need to do is listen and remove the organizational barriers so people can do their work. Do you feel the role of the health and safety professional has changed during your time as a consultant and, and moving to more recent times? Has the coronavirus pandemic had a role to play in how OSH practitioners are viewed within an organization and outside organizations? So I think it probably depends on the industry and the organization. Firstly, from a COVID perspective, I think it probably has. I think it's probably elevated the importance of the role and also rebalanced it to not just safety, but health and safety. But I would also argue that part of that is health and safety practitioners have had to change. So become much more agile responsive, less bureaucratic in their approach. So while I think it's elevated the profession, I think the professions had to elevate. And what's important is keeping that agility and not going back to kind of a policeman driving blind compliance kind of mentality. So I'd say that around COVID. And then in terms of more broadly, I read a lot and I'm super interested in all the new thinking and safety. So, you know, safety too and safety differently, whatever language you want to put around it. But what I struggle with is you often get practitioners that are wedded to a particular point of view. And frankly, I use everything, whatever's going to work in whatever the context I'm working in. And they're all valuable. You need to dance in the context and you know bring everything from our views of safety from other industries from other disciplines so I struggle a little bit I think the thinking's changed and I like the direction it's changed but I think there's still a, a tendency to be a little bit dogmatic. I think that's one of the most interesting things about safety and more so than any sort of sector that I've ever worked in is that is that keenness to share ideas and share initiatives. I think everybody's working towards the same end goal. So you almost, as a safety practitioner, you haven't really got a competitor, so to speak. You're all trying to keep people safe. And actually that shared knowledge and shared ideas and actually taking on board what other people are doing, I think resonates really well. And the content that we produce, a lot of case study type content, really resonates well because there's always something you can pick up from what somebody else is doing and implement with your own business. Exactly. Let's move on to Grenfell now, where you've obviously been a, a real key voice in campaigning for the, some of the victims and survivors and those embroiled in the subsequent cladding crisis. What can you tell us about some of the work you've been doing there? And also, am I right in thinking that you're a former resident of, of Grenfell itself? Yeah, so I lived in Grenfell from 2011 to 2014. So I lived on the 21st floor and I now live in Trelec. So I fell in love with high rise living and then bought an apartment in Trelec, which looks over Grainful. So right now I can see out my window Grainful. So yes, I did live there. I saw it burn and seven of my neighbours on the 21st floor died. One of my particular interests or passions is major accident prevention. So actually when I was watching it burn, I kept thinking about Piper Alpha. So many people will know Piper Alpha, 167 deaths, still the biggest industrial accident in the North Sea. And there's a lot of similarities, which I won't go into the detail of that. But when I was watching the fire, very committed to the learning from major accidents, applying the learning from high hazard industries, major accident prevention to Grenfell. So I think that's really where it started, was a commitment to that. But then I'd also assumed falsely, so it turns out, that 
it would be a catalyst for change. So I know from high hazard industries is catastrophic events really are a catalyst for change. And I've worked in the industry post some major incidents and have seen the change. I kind of assumed that, okay, great, there's some learning I can bring and we'll all engage in learning and, you know, create something different. And then over time realized how things weren't changing. So I wouldn't say I campaigned for anybody, but I'm I'm just committed that there's change. 72 people lost their lives. It was completely predictable. It was absolutely preventable. And we're not learning the lessons. And I mean, in a particular way, we're not changing how we think. So we might have more attention on fire doors, but we're not changing how we think about our relationship to risk or our relationship to the tacit knowledge of the frontline or residents in the case of high-rise buildings. In terms of your major frustrations since Grenfell, obviously you mentioned the fact that there's been a kind of lack of uh, movement in chains. Do you think that the incoming legislation, fire safety bill, building safety bill, things like this, is is going to make a difference? We'll, we'll come on to the cladding kind of crisis in, in a second. But do you think that there's some kind of legislative change there beginning to come into force now? Is it too late in many or is too late in many ways? So I distinguish between what I call piecemeal versus systemic change. So it will create piecemeal change. So there will be change fire doors and it'll change inspection regimes around fire doors. So you'll see improvements in quality in terms of that, obviously the cladding, which we can come back to. So yes, it will create processes for residents' voices, at least to be elevated in some way. But again, I don't know that it's leading to systemic change. So one of my big things is thinking about low probability, high consequence risk and events distinctly. Has it changed that? I don't think so. If you listen to Genric's recent speech around the extra 3.5 billion, he's not thinking about low probability catastrophic events. He's not thinking about the nature of those events. So... I don't think it's changing systemically how we think. Where do you think that systemic change has to come from? Is, is it from top down from the government? Is it, is it from the entire industry as a whole? Well, I'm a little bit cynical about it, frankly. If I just mention the book briefly. So I started writing a book. I was asked to write a book on Grenfell and systemic change. And then I started writing it just as COVID hit. And then I saw, okay, all the issues that I'm writing about with Grenfell are exactly the same as what we're dealing with with COVID. So I don't think that we are committed to it. I think there's a lack of political intent for systemic change, number one. So I would not hold out for the government or the industry to do anything other than piecemeal change, which will make a difference. I'm not knocking piecemeal change. It's important. But frankly, I think it's down to campaigners to create much more systemic change in the way that we think. I just don't see any evidence that any of the official means of inquiries have produced systemic change or will. So you mentioned Piper Alpha and how that did create a systemic change within that sector. Why do you think it's so different on this occasion? And, and, and you know, what, what is it that's, that's not brought about those changes? It's a very interesting question. I I wish I had the exact answer to it, but like all of these things, it's complex. But number one, I think it's quite different when you're dealing with organization. So I think when you're dealing with organizations, the consequences are known and real. So you'll lose your license to operate. So the, the existence of the organization depends on you taking these things seriously. And if we look at the housing sector, there's no consequence for people not doing much. So, you know, the people that are bearing the consequence really are the leaseholders and the residents, to a small degree, the taxpayer. But until that gets worked out, until there's a consequence for poor practice, poor practice will continue. So if there was intent, people would change. But in the face of lack of intent, what you need is is consequences. And we don't have sufficient consequences to 
enable change. And it's much more complex because you've got housing associations, governments. It's it's not the same as a organization. Having been in the construction sector a few years now, there's so many facets to it, whether from the whole supply chain, from house building to renovations to installers. It's it's it is it is a, a very wide scope of people who have to kind of bring in the systemic change and therefore you have to come at it from all angles. Otherwise, they'll always find sort of loopholes, I guess. You mentioned the recent speech from Robert Jenrick. What did you make of the recent announcement from the government about the extra $3.5 billion? I'm going to start with some figures before I answer that. So the estimate is that it'll cost $15 billion to fix all fire safety defects just in England. So not just cladding, but, you know, there's big issues with fire breaks, fire doors, fire lifts, et cetera, et cetera. So government estimates are 15 billion for that. In terms of high-rise buildings, there's 455 with ACM, so over 18 meters with ACM, and an estimated 1,700 high-rise with non-ACM. And then we have no idea how many below 18 meters. And in three and a half years, we've remediated 216 ACM buildings. And we're not even tracking what's happening with the 1,700 non-ACM. So we have this massive issue. While, yeah, it's great to get another 3.5 billion, but that takes to 5.1 billion what the government's given for a 15 billion problem just in England. And it's only dealing with cladding. And one of my big issues is the the risk of the buildings not being viewed systemically. So it's not just a matter of the cladding. In Grenfell, it was the cladding, it was the fire doors, it was the ventilation system, it was the escape route. It was this massive combination of factors that led to that number of deaths. So a siloed focus on cladding just to me seems absolutely ludicrous. And that coming up to four years now after Grenfell, we don't actually know the scale of the problem is just incomprehensible to me. You know, if you have high-risk industries, Macondo, you know, blowout preventer, within a month, every single company would have audited their blowout preventers and they would have a maintenance list and identified what was at risk. And, you know, that four years afterwards, we don't know what's so. It's ludicrous great there's more money but you haven't dealt with the issue yeah it's something that i think people in the industry point out a lot is is that yes the cladding is an issue but it's too much emphasis on a the cladding that everything else in the whole picture of fire stopping um i was speaking to someone the other uh, recently who said that the stay put policy in essence in theory there's not necessarily anything wrong with the stay put policy but all of the fire stopping procedures have to work to ensure that the state put policy exists. And unfortunately, in so many buildings, that just isn't the case because, you know, people forget about as soon as you put in a new plumbing system or a new electrical system, suddenly there's a, there's a gap there that might cause an issue. And it's, it's been really fascinating for me because I, I came from a magazine in the plumbing and heating sector and how that ties in with what that may do to the commercial, particularly commercial buildings or multi-residential buildings is slightly quite terrifying to be honest you mentioned that there's just no data really on the the low rise what what they would consider low rise buildings how, how much of an issue is this do you feel is this something that they really need to start looking into of course they do so you know so if you look at what's called the cladding scandal so people that are caught up in buildings which have become unmortgageable because people are not willing to lend until you've got this thing called a EWS1 certificate which has all of its own issues, but people are essentially stuck in unsafe buildings. Leaseholders are stuck in unsafe buildings, unable to move. And now with the government announcement was they said that they'd cap a loan at £50 a month after promising that leaseholders wouldn't have to pay. But, you know, that's, I think, what we're used to seeing with the government. So, of course, it's an issue. We've seen a lot of fires in buildings like catastrophic fires in buildings below 18 meters no one's died in them so if you look at the crew or the the, the crew care home the barking the I think it's the riverside one where there were massive massive fires I think one of the things that's not taken into account is 
part of what I think the reason that there haven't been deaths is that there's been a change in how the public behave post-Grenfell. So if you look at fires in multi-occupancy buildings, people are helping each other get out or the public in the street are going in and knocking on doors. So I think that Grenfell has changed how the public's related to fires. And that's not even being looked at. So again, it just keeps being the siloed cladding issue. But in terms of how big is the issue, well, we certainly know that there's some that are dangerous because the government said that, but that we don't know is my issue. Four yeah. years later, we don't know the scale of the problem. That's yeah, the, the uh, lack of incomprehensible. Data, the lack of- <laughs> that that lack of data is just like okay. Yeah, that's totally understandable. And finally, just a thought on third-party approvals. It's something that we cover quite a lot on IFSEC Global and, and, and we're looking to do more of it at FireX International, the show that runs alongside us. How important do you believe it is that products have been approved by independent third-party certification companies? Well, you would go, yes, it's important. But as we're seeing in the Grainful Inquiry is how meaningful are those certificates and culture that games things and has, you know, bottom line profit at its core. So, yes, they're important, but how do you ensure that they're accurate and how do you ensure the independence of the testing bodies? Because the notion of regulatory capture, so when there's movement between the regulators and the sectors, there seems to be a lot of that going on in the housing sector or in the regulation of these things. Yes, I think it's important, but it can only be relied on if the independence and quality of that work can be relied on, which certainly in the UK can't be. But I'm very much against the notion of blind compliance. I actually am not such a fan of prescriptive rules. The only reason I think it's right to ban combustible materials in the UK is because we are so incompetent, not because prescriptive regulations are the answer. And there's this brilliant video, Jose Torero is one of the expert witnesses at the Grenfell Tower, did a number of reports in phase one, and he speaks about the issue really being one of capability. So we need to be innovative, which means that there will be complexity. You need the capability to deal with the ambiguity involved in complexity versus relying on prescriptive rules or certificates on products. You need competent people to understand how things work systemically and look at risk. It absolutely does. And I think it's never been more important. And and to be honest, I guess this comes back to this, the systemic change of culture that needs to happen in the building sector. It's It's everybody who has to buy into or buy in or own this, as you say. You mentioned the supply chain earlier, but one of the things that really shocked me around the module one of phase two, when we're looking at the supply chain, is how people didn't consider risk holistically. So actually, before lockdown happened, I was in another country, I was in Azerbaijan, and I was working with a whole group of suppliers in a supply chain. And we were talking about How are we going to manage risk collectively? And particularly when things like commercials don't pull for it. And then I was like thinking about that workshop and then listening to the evidence and going, everybody just deferred risk to everybody else. And you can't manage catastrophic risk unless it's a collective. I'm not talking about the legal liability, but you have to look at the management of change and the risk collectively. That's just shocking for me how that just seems to just be missing as a conversation even. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And it's something that um consultant who I speak to quite a lot considers it. And, he, you know, his, his, his idea of implementing a good fire stopping practice is that everybody at the design stage comes in and, and discusses the, the elements of fire safety and risk. Otherwise, if you don't have ownership from everyone at that first initial stage, it will get lost. Yeah, great. Thank you. Really, really interesting discussion. Jill, just finally, as you mentioned, towards the back end of last year, you were voted amongst the, the top 25 most influential people in health and safety by our readers. You said at the time that whilst you appreciate the recognition, it's an award for all those who are working towards change. But how important is it, is it that a campaigner for Grenfell was named on the list? And what do you think that recognition does for the work that you and your fellow colleagues are doing? 
what I love about it is it's a publicly nominated award. So for me, pre-Grainful, I had no interest in having a public voice. <laughs> I mean, I was on LinkedIn to be connected. I wasn't on Twitter. <laughs> I had no interest in public voice. I like my little private life. But then I realized if I'm going to enable change, I need to have a public voice, as have many other people. So I think it's a recognition of the conversation shifting, which makes me really happy because it's a publicly nominated award. There's something about, okay, the public is calling for change. And as I said right at the beginning, earlier on in the interview, in terms of what I think systemic change will require it will be public pressure so that i think is enormously important you mentioned you're on social media how can people follow you and learn about some of the messages that you're sharing i'm pretty active on social media so either linkedin or twitter i have a blog called the grainful inquirer inquirer with an e but i post everything on there on social media and just finally, before before we leave, um, James, can you just briefly tell uh, anybody, I know any of our readers aren't aware of IFSEC Global about the work you do and, and how they can follow you? Yeah, of course, Ian. Uh, thank you for having me on today. IFSEC Global is essentially a bespoke news and content website dedicated to the security and fire safety sectors. Similar to SHP, we cover the security and fire safety side of things. Specifically related to fire safety, we, we run alongside the FireX International event, it takes place in London each year. We cover key topics in both the passive and active uh, fire protection markets. More recently, we've been keeping an eye, a keen eye on all the legislative developments coming through that we've, we've discussed in this podcast. As a result of Grenfell, the reports, the campaigns that have followed it, uh, including the Building Safety Bill and the Fire Safety Bill. Uh, and, and what this means for the industry, you know, what, what's it going to mean for the, the supply chain, the fire safety consultants and, and everybody within that. You can find us at ifsetglobal.com. So, so give us a bookmark or on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook. We also have a weekly fire briefing newsletter, which rounds up all the latest in the sector and, and everything that we've been posting. So that's us. Some really powerful words there from Jill. It was interesting to see her comparison with major accidents in high hazard industries and her frustrations with how the tragic events of June 2017 have not been a catalyst for change. It was clear from the outset that the fire could have been predicted and prevented and we must learn from the failings of Grenfell in order to prevent anything similar from happening again. The work of Jill and many other like-minded people must be applauded. If you'd like to follow Jill's work, you can find all of the links she mentioned in the episode description. I will also link to James's write-up on IFSEC Global. Next up, we're going to bring you a short news update. Heather Beach is the chair of the Women in Health and Safety Network in the UK. And she spoke to me about how the network has been affected by the pandemic and looked ahead to its plans for 2021. Women in Health and Safety Network began in 2015 as part of SHP and Safety and Health Expo when Heather, who worked on the event at the time, identified from an SHP survey that the safety profession was 29% female, but that this was not reflected in networking events. The Women in Health and Safety Network was set up to bring women together and amplify their voices. Today, it's a thriving network of people who support gender equality and want to see women flourish in the profession. The network connects in person and online and is open to all. I began by asking Heather to reflect on the last 12 months. Well, it was quite an interesting period, really, because we'd created a committee from the industry. So it wasn't all led by me and also SHP and SH Expo because we wanted it to be a community driven thing. So Judith Grant was our chair and poor Judith contracted long COVID and she's still suffering really badly now, almost a year later. So obviously that kind of meant that her involvement was really slim. And I run a business, a well-being business, and we had to kind of recreate everything to get it into a shape where we could keep up with what people needed right now. So that was an awful lot of work. So again, the amount of time I had to give to the network was very slim too. And all of our health and safety professional customers have been incredibly up to the wire in terms of all the work they've had to do to make workplaces secure, to look after people, both their mental and physical health in this period. So nobody's had very much spare time for networking. But what we did was a couple of things. The first was we ran a couple of events just kind of like 
hear what people had been up to, hear what their struggles were, hear what they would like to take forward from this period. And they were small, sort of informal, quite intimate events where everyone got a chance to speak. And that was really nice. They were like virtual cuppers, we called them. So we ran a couple of those. And also towards more like during this lockdown, during lockdown three, we've really been looking at the purpose of the network and how we revitalize it to bring a greater amount of opportunities for the women part of it. And we recently uh, we recently met up in January, I think it was, to, to discuss plans for 2021 uh, and beyond. So what can you tell us about what's coming up ahead and, and beyond this year? Yeah, well, it's quite exciting, really, because not having to be about physical events anymore has made an enormous difference to us just taking the kind of the filters off, really, and thinking about all the things that we can do to support women. So we've got lots of work streams. So the committee is still made up from the industry, but we've got these work streams and the work streams are mentoring. So we're looking at the best structure for mentoring right now because there are so many different structures out there in the industry and we don't really want to reinvent the wheel. So that's being run by Gillian Simcox. Then we've also got one on events. Now, obviously, initially, these won't be physical events. These will be virtual events. But we're looking at how we want to bring those together, what kind of criteria we've got. And our first one will be in April and it will be on domestic violence. We're waiting for a date for that. But watch this space because that will be out really soon. The work stream is being run by Amy Sadro. We've also looking at social media. We're looking at what we can use more effectively from a social media perspective and making sure we're getting lots of messages out in our various um, social media groups. That's being run by Chinway OKK. Then we've got one on getting young people into the profession. So how do we make it more attractive? So talking to schools, universities, that type of thing. And that is being run by Aoife Devaney. And then we've got you. We've co-opted you into the committee, you and Charlotte, and your roles, I think, are absolutely critical in amplifying female voices. Five years ago, six years ago, when we started the committee, pretty much everyone on the speaker circuit was male. And now we've really redressed the balance in some of the work we've been doing. And I think continuing with that is a really great way for women to raise their profiles. And then finally, we've got Anne Gardner-Aston who is also our plug into the international group, which is a newly formed group bringing together all of the women in groups in health and safety around the world. That's really exciting times. It sounds like there's, there's plenty going on and uh, lots of, uh, of interesting and, and exciting opportunities to get involved in. What do you see your relationship with the International Women in Safety Coalition? How do you see that the, the networks worldwide linking up and what opportunities do you think that brings? It definitely brings opportunity. So one of the first ones that I can see is being able to look at what other people are doing around the world in their groups and learning from those and and perhaps them learning some things from us. So sharing what's what's working, what's not working. Equally, giving the opportunity to speakers from around the world. So I think it's fantastic to have the idea of maybe somebody from Africa speaking at one of our women in health and safety events. That will be amazing. And just the amount of buzz there's been around the group is really helping to raise the profile of the individual groups too. It really is a question of together we're stronger. I think that's something that that lockdown has taught us, isn't it? That actually it actually broadens the horizon on, on where people can speak from. You know, we run a lot of webinars on SHP and actually we're not restricted now as to where people can come on and talk to us. Uh, you know, during our webinars, during our virtual speaking events, then the world is your oyster now. You can get people talking from all over. It's quite emotional, actually, I always think that actually you can be very early on in the pandemic. I was on an event and there were uh, hundreds of people from around the world and you can see all their little pictures showing up and speaking to somebody who was in Israel or in America and them all going through very similar things, I think was really, really emotional. And this whole thing about webinars, it's funny, isn't it? Because even when we used to run a webinar with SHP, we'd always go into the office to do Mm. it, wouldn't we? So we'd all be in one place running it. And it seems anathema that now you think, oh, flipping it, why did we do that? But it had to be done really well didn't it it had to be really perfect and I think that's something that we've learned from this is that actually perfection isn't always necessary good enough is good enough sometimes yeah absolutely 
Just finally, uh, where can people find out about the network and about the work you're doing? Uh, I believe there's a mailing list set up as well. So how do people find out about that? Yeah, so we do have a LinkedIn group. And basically, if you're a member of the LinkedIn group, then you're a member of our network as far as we're concerned. However, LinkedIn groups are pretty terrible for getting messages out. They don't really get shared very much. You can't really see very much in them. So we would really recommend that you join our mailing list too. So you can join it from within the group. If you find the link within the group, you can join it from within there. Or you can email me directly. I'm heather at healthy-working.com or look for our website, which is healthyworkcompany.com. And by joining our mailing list there, you'll join the Women in Health and Safety mailing list. It has to be said that you may well get sent some of our well-being stuff as well, but you can always remove yourself from our Healthy Work mailing list and stay on the Women in Health and Safety one if that's something you want to do. So just be aware of that. But please do join us there because that is the way you're going to find out about every event that we're running it's quite difficult to find it out through the LinkedIn group SHP also do put all of our events within there don't they as well Ian so you can also if you keep an eye on SHP and make sure you open each each issue as it comes through get a good reading then you will find out about them there too Absolutely. Yeah. And we'll put all the links to those various pages in the episode description of this episode as well. And uh, the group is obviously open to uh, not just women, it's, it's men as well. And uh, anybody that wants to kind of take part and, and, uh, and, and get involved can get involved as well. Is that right? Oh, look, we've had about 200 members join since you put your lovely article up a few days ago. And we're on to about 2,800 members now. And I think probably about 25% of them are male. We need male allies too, definitely. And it's great to see men understanding why it makes sense, makes business sense to have women able to uh, to make a contribution in, in this world as well. So uh, yes, absolutely open to men, women, and actually tangential health and safety uh, interests. We've had all sorts of people join who you think oh that's interesting I wonder why you're interested in this area but you can see there's a tangential interest there so yes absolutely open to all in this final part I caught up with Andrew Sharman founder and chairman of 1% Safer and Malcolm Staves corporate health and safety director at L'Oreal to get an update on the 1% Safer foundation why Malcolm got involved in the project and the upcoming 1% Safer conference. I guess the idea started back in May last year, 2020. I went back from Switzerland where I live to Scotland where I'm from to visit some family and then got caught in the lockdown. I ended up staying there for three and a half months in Scotland and I was kind of frustrated thinking, what am I supposed to do now? You know, I was president of IOSH at the time. I wasn't going out around branches. That was frustrating me. And my work as a consultant was shifting around too. And I thought, well, what can I possibly do in, in, in this time of pandemic? And over a good glass of Scotch whiskey one evening, I thought, do you know what I can do? I can try to rally around the troops and see where the people in my network might be interested in doing something together. And I've been frustrated for a long time about the focus in safety on numbers, particularly zero accidents as a target and lost time injury rates being the primary metric. So I thought, you know, if we could just make the world a little bit safer, wouldn't that be cool? So that's really how this, this book came about, that if we could just make a small difference every day, all of us, then making the world 1% safer would result in 28,000 lives saved every year. It was a really interesting just the speed in which you put that together. And I was delighted to be asked to be involved in the project myself. And Malcolm, I'm interested to, to know kind of your story behind it, how to get involved and briefly what your chapter within the book is about and what it touches on. I got this email from Andrews with this, what I thought was a crazy idea of uh, putting a book together with what he called 142, 143 influencers in this space. And I was sort of intrigued by it and, and captivated by it as well, because I'd never heard of anything like this actually ever being done before. And I thought, wow, th this could be a game changer. This could be very interesting. The article itself runs through, I think, some of my life experiences, I would say, of things that I've learned that if I could pass on to a senior line manager, a member of the C-suite, a member of the board, what would I tell them about organizing themselves for good health and safety within an organization? And then it all came back to, and it tied in extremely well with the 1% Safer of Be The Hummingbird, which of course, Be The Hummingbird is my hashtag on LinkedIn, as you probably know. And it's all around an American fable, as I understand it, of doing the best we can and trying to make a difference. 
And within L'Oreal, we turn around and say that if every single employee within L'Oreal, 90,000 employees, each do a little bit for health and safety every day, that makes one big difference. So this whole concept of what Andrew was trying to do just tied into my personal values, the personal things that I was doing. So I was in there, hook, line and sinker. What we want here with 1% Safer is for business leaders and managers to pick this up and realize that they, without being technical specialists, can do something themselves. Completely, yeah. Just to let you know, I, I mean, um, not just trying to plug the book, but I bought around about 50. I distributed it to all my EHS network and some senior leaders, and it is still on people's desks. They love it. They find it from a management point of view. They find it interesting because it's different and it appeals to their interest in leadership and management. Yeah, I just think this idea was absolutely fantastic. And, you know, I'm happy that I've been able to contribute. I think it's so different, isn't it? It gets people thinking and there's something in there because it's got a wide variant of people that are involved in the project. Yes, the whole book might not apply to you. You might not read it from cover to cover, but there's bits in there that you're going to pick out and go, that applies to me. That's really useful to me. And it's really interesting going back to sort of what you were saying there, Malcolm, about encouraging people to to talk to their teams. And, and I think health and safety, a large part, comes down to minding your own health and safety as an individual. And once you are aware of your own health and safety, then you can influence the health and safety of others around you. And it, even that small, minute bit of detail, if you can pass that on to people to go, let's be more aware about what I'm doing, and then everybody else taking care of their, themselves, then that actually is going to help the organisation as a wide moving forward as well. Be the hummingbird, huh? The website is 1percentsafer.com. And I believe, is that right, there's still available copies for people to go and get hold of this book if, if they want to purchase it now? There is. Look, there's not many left. We've been amazed at just how quickly people have taken up this idea. As Malk says, it's a it's a compendium of ideas on all sorts of things. And Ian, as you pointed out, it's a diversity of subject matter that's in there. There's traditional safety, there's process safety, there's behavioural safety, there's culture, there's leadership, there's hygiene, there's health, there's well-being. There's a whole gamut of stuff in there. So the idea is that you you might pick it up as kind of like a coffee table book and flick through and and, and be kind of catching your attention by some of the artwork in here and then reading the chapter that goes with it and dipping in and out of it. It it doesn't look like any other safety book that's ever been out as far as I'm aware. You know, it's a big, chunky, heavyweight thing. So yeah, there's still some books left. We've got books with some artwork as well, big kind of gatefold poster artworks and all sorts of stuff. So we're amazed at how well people are responding to it. So you can find out more at 1%safer.com and join the movement there because people are pledging what they're doing to make the world 1% safer, which is really cool to see people around the world telling us what they're up to and, and committing to this movement. And that's one of the things that you touched upon it there that stood out for me as well, is, is this, the artwork in it is absolutely stunning. It really does stand out and it, it doesn't feel like you're kind of a heavy going read. It's something you can kind of pick up, flick through, look at the images, learn something from, and it's really good to see and the artwork in it is absolutely stunning. So off the back of it, the 1% Safer Foundation was set up. Can you talk a little bit about kind of where the money from that's raised is going to go and, and how can people access and, and kind of apply for, for that money that's been raised off this project? Yeah, you're right. So this is not a commercial product. We've set up a foundation to generate all of the profit from the sale of the book and the artwork. All of it goes directly into the foundation, which then disperses that money for people that need a bit of extra support. And that particularly falls into two categories. The first is um, practical help in the form of small grants or support with professional education for OSH practitioners that have become vulnerable and lost their jobs as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. And then the second group that we're encouraging to apply is for the provision of small grants of seed capital or help with education and training and support for organisations in the third sector, not-for-profits, charitable institutions, social enterprises, organisations like that, that perhaps don't have the benefit of having someone like Malcolm Staves looking after health and safety for them. So these two groups and uh, details on how to apply for a grant or support is on the website too. If I can add something there, Ian, I mean, as you know, I'm... I volunteered to be a member of the Board of Trustees. When I saw what Andrew was doing here and the people he was pulling together and the vision of the difference that this project would make, I just wanted to be on board. I mean, it ties into my own personal values, but also the values of the company that I work for. We have a program called Safer Work, Safer Tome. That's all about trying to make a difference outside of work. And this is exactly what this is doing. I mean, putting everything to side, it just, for me, it ticked all the boxes and I just wanted to be on board, just wanted to make a difference and help people 
that needed helping. And it comes to come at a better time, with the, as Andrew said, with, with, with the COVID. So this is an absolutely amazing project, and I'm just so happy to be part of it. And next up for you, Andrew, is the 1% Safer Conference. What can you tell us about that and uh, kind of what that's going to be covering and, and what's involved in that project? Well, here's the funny thing. I don't know too much about it, Ian. But this, <laughs> this was my idea to create this book at the beginning, but the whole thing has kind of taken legs, right? My idea was create a book by 142 global thought leaders, sell 3,000 copies of the book, get some cash, give it to the people that need it most to help them make the world a safer place. That idea then grew into, well, we need a foundation and we need a board of trustees. So we did a recruitment drive and got people, including Malk and, and, and other fantastic leaders around the world to join our board. And the board now runs 1% Safer Foundation. I just happen to be a member of that board. So the board have decided they want a conference and the conference is coming up in April. It's going to be virtual. It's an online conference, as you'd imagine. We're going to run it for people around the world with some big name speakers, contributors to the book, and also people that have bought the book and invested themselves in this 1% Safer movement. And they'll come and share what they're doing. So real life case studies by real OSH practitioners around the world that are just sharing what it means to them and how they're doing their little bit to make the world a little bit safer. I know from, from personal experience, from the content that we run on SHP, how useful that case study type content is, as, as we've touched upon already. The whole book might not be useful to you, but there's always snippets of information that you can pull out that are relevant to you and your organisation. You can think, oh, I can use a bit of that and I can use a bit of that. I think that's a great idea to get that case study type content is really, really valuable because there's always something there that you can pick up and, and, and utilise within your own organisation. Yeah, and look, the prize here is huge, right? There's 2.78 million people losing their lives to work-related accidents and ill health every year. So that's 7,616 people every day. It's 317 every hour. It's one every 10 seconds. You know, these are huge numbers, but when we break them down, we can then start to think about the practicality of doing something about it. And if we all just made the world 1% safer, that's 28,000 people that are not losing their lives every year. And, and that feels quite exciting. So this idea of, of dipping in, getting ideas is important because it un underlines the principle that sits around this book. And it's simply this, that doing less bad is not the same as doing more good. And with this book, we want to do more good. So we're giving you all of these ideas to try to help you think about positive things, the inputs that you can do, the way that you can create safety and health in the workplace. So you're right. Every single one of them may not be a great chapter for everyone, but I'm certain that everybody that gets a copy of this book will find that some great stuff in there for them. April might come too soon, but over the next year or two, you might find there's going to be some real tangible evidence from companies that have taken something from this book and actually been able to show statistically, this is what I've put in place and what it's actually helped accomplish. What's kind of your aims for the foundation and, and, and moving on beyond April? I'm guessing we're hoping, obviously, that, that COVID is going to come to an end at some point. Has, has any thought gone into kind of what happens beyond that or is it going to just the short term at the moment? Yeah, look, I've got to tell you, the, uh, the, the board of trustees at 1% Safer are, uh, are coming up with ideas constantly. We're having board meetings every couple of weeks at the moment as there's so much to get done and, and so much enthusiasm. The board of trustees, I should say, Ian, are all volunteers like me and like everybody else involved with the project. Nobody is being recompensed in any way for it. So it's amazing to see this group of people giving their time freely. I mean, these are all senior leaders, right? They're giving their time freely because they believe in this cause. So we've got all sorts of things coming up. We, we, uh, we're building a partnership in New Zealand right now. There's some stuff happening down there. In other countries around the world, we've got similar discussions going. Uh, one of our board members is in North America. She's got some big stuff happening over there too. It, it, it just seems to be growing exponentially at the moment. And, and given that this was an idea that's not even a year old yet, and it was just felt like a bit of a crazy brainwave at the time to tell you the, the, the truth, I'm amazed and feeling really proud that so many people have stepped in and, and, and taken this up. So a lot on the horizon. Keep watching this space. And we hope that SHP continues to partner with us on this too. I think that's what's so fascinating about the health and safety profession is that hunger for networking and sharing information. Everybody's working towards the same end goal. And you're not trying to compete with your competitor down the road. For, oh, I want to save more lives than him. You're all competing for the same end goal, the same sharing wealth of information i think that what makes it so interesting and there's always there's so much hunger for learning and i really like that just to come in on that point actually you're right that we do all have the same shared goal but actually in my experience over the last 25 years it doesn't appear that way sometimes 
is this model better than that model? Is, is this perspective better than that? In this book, I've managed to somehow get all of my career heroes together in one place. People like Sid Decker, Eric Holnagel, Edgar Schein, Paul Slovich, Yuki Takla, Guldemund, Hopkins, Gigerenza, Ferreira, Cooper, Diane Parker, Patrick Hudson. They're all in there. All of these kind of leading lights of safety all the way through my career and arguably broader business. People like Edgar Schein. I mean, this guy's 95. He's the godfather of organizational culture. And here he is getting into 1% safer. All of these people coming together are uniting around safety. They may have different perspectives or different models or different theories, but they're all absolutely committed to just making the world a little bit safer. And that feels really quite exciting. Just finally, before we leave you, can you just remind people, first of all, how they get a hold of a copy of the book? And then how can they find out more information about the upcoming conference? How do people sign up to register for that to attend that conference? For the book, we have a website, which is www.1percentsafer.com. There's a load of information on there about the organization. They can buy the book from it and they can also make a pledge. So they can pledge to say what they're going to do to make the world 1% safer. And I'm going to add something to what uh, Andrew's been saying about the, um, you know, the 2.78 million people per year that lose their lives. There are actually as well 374 million lost time accidents per year as well. So if we can have an indent into that as well, it's absolutely amazing, you know, and this is what it's all about because there's no, there's no competition when it comes to health and safety. Absolutely no competition because it's all about people. So go to the website. You can make a pledge. Just say what you're doing, just what you think you can do in order to make the world 1% safer. And who knows who you might even inspire to do exactly the same thing. You know, it's just a a fantastic idea. I think hats off to Andrew to have this type of idea, whether it was in a shower or whether it was around having a cup of tea or whatever. It's just absolutely amazing everybody's going to see the vibrations, the ripples are going to go across the world because this is going to make a big difference. Some exciting plans ahead then for the 1% Safer Foundation. If you've not yet bought yourself a copy of the book, please do go and check out the website. All the links you need will be in the episode description. I'd like to say a huge thank you to everyone who's joined me on this episode. Jill Kernick, James Moore, Heather Beach, Andrew Sharman and Max Daves. Thanks too to you for tuning in and listening. If you've not listened to the previous seven episodes of the Sapient Health podcast, please do go back and check those out. Last time we heard highlights from two recent SHP webinars, one on leadership and one on safety culture. And you can find the link to the SHP podcast hub in the description of this episode. If you like what you hear, please subscribe wherever you get your podcast to get the latest episode as soon as it's released. And we'd be really grateful if you could give us a rating. That would really help us to get the shows out to a wider audience. Please do stay tuned to shponline.co.uk for the very latest health and safety news and you can also sign up to our daily e-newsletter. Thank you very much for listening and see you on the next episode.